Okay. Say something. Hey. <laughs> How's it going? Pretty good. So we're here. This is the first episode of Wisdom for Life, a new show that's devoted to talking about philosophy and how it can be made practical. Yeah. Um, so what we are talking about here a lot is going to be practical philosophy and um, how that differs from the kind of idea of what is uh, academic philosophy. Exactly. So we've got a lot of uh, cool stuff lined up for this hour and uh, we'll give you a little rundown of that. But um, first, I think we will we'll introduce ourselves. Uh, so let me introduce my, my co-host, Dan Hayes. Uh, he can tell you a little bit about himself. So um, I'm the uh, co-organizer of the Milwaukee Stowe Fellowship, um, and I'm um, I also run a weekly Stoke meetup at the Humboldt Collectivo uh, Sunday mornings. Yeah, Dan is kind of underselling himself a bit. He does a lot of organizing when it comes to practical philosophy stuff here in the Milwaukee area. I do what I can, <laughs> and and the illustrious Professor Greg Sadler. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So I, 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 I'm somebody who started out in academia doing philosophy in, uh, you know, the traditional academic way, teaching classes. And then I, I started realizing how useful it could be in a lot of different contexts. And uh, now, you know, we, we have a lot of cool stuff going on in here in Milwaukee. We have the Stoic Fellowship that D Dan and I are both uh, leading, I guess you'd say, you know, co with uh, co-organizers, yes. and uh, there's other things going on as well. There's uh, a group called Sophia Milwaukee, which is uh, devoted to public philosophy, and there's uh, events around the year, so we'll probably talk about some of those on the show. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about how, you know, how we got the idea for doing the show as well. Yeah, um, so why don't you tell us that story, Greg? Well... Uh, we'd been kicking the idea around for quite a while, right? We, yeah. we, we thought maybe a podcast or something along those lines. And then, uh, we got the opportunity here. Yeah. And you know, um, River West radio is community radio. So it's, it's perfectly suited to this, this sort of endeavor because, uh, we can offer a, a rather unique voice that, uh, probably, I don't think there's anything like this in the Midwest right now. I don't know. It, it all that uh, the local stations that uh, were popping up in what the mid 2000s and um, yeah. you know uh, really gives a voice for the community but yeah you know, we came here and we had a, a really great Christmas special uh, that's right or yeah, a holiday yeah. special you know um, talking about why it's good to give yeah and generosity is a virtue and when you want to give and when you don't want to give and all those those sorts of things and we looked at it from a philosophical perspective mostly informed by by stoicism which is which is something that Dan and I have have in common um, but bringing in some other perspectives as well and we liked being on the radio so much that we decided to make it a regular thing so we're going to be here every other Friday um, talk from, go ahead from 5 to 6 p.m. Uh, talking for an hour yeah, and, and we'll have different topics. This this first episode, we thought we would introduce ourselves and talk a little bit about 
what the show is going to be about in general terms. And so we have some things already lined up. But one of the things I do want to point out is each show, at least so far as we've got it in mind right now, will probably close out the show by talking about an actionable philosophical practice that you could put into practice right after finishing the show and or listening to the show and um it'll be drawn from ancient or medieval or modern philosophy and we'll we'll put it into terms that are easy to understand and we'll also be looking at um questions from the community exactly yeah real life issues that can be illuminated by by philosophy not not totally solved Mm -hmm. but at least we can get some guidelines on, on how to deal with them. And we've got, you know, thousands of years of uh, history and uh, people deep thinking about these ideas. And, you know, the human condition hasn't changed all that much on a really macro level. That's right. Yeah. It's surprising. This is it's a, just a little bit of experiential stuff. I've been teaching philosophy classes for about 20 years now. And one of the cool experiences that I have is about students having a certain kind of experience themselves, which is they, you know, let's take, just take Plato, right? They read Plato, and I have them read Plato's Republic, and they groan a bit. Oh, i got to read this old text. And then they read um, what's going on, say, in Book 4, where Plato's talking about these three parts of the soul and, oh, theological stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then they read it, and they're like, oh, wait a second, this is psychology. And, man, this, this actually, you know, it may not be exactly the right way to look at it but this this illuminates a lot of stuff for me this make helps me make sense of things and we we see those aha moments and then there's more that can come out of it you say well if you like that you could you could read this as well it's really gratifying mm-hmm. so the question is which horse are you oh or that's the phaedrus yeah yeah <laughs> uh well i've always you know i'm going to use a, a, a term here and we're always going to try to define terms as best as we can so that you don't have to have a uh you know background in philosophy in order to understand this but i'm going to say i'm a thumatic kind of person mm. meaning that um in plato's terms i'm driven by this middle part of the soul which is the part with which we experience uh courage but also anger and you know respond to potential threats or insults or things like that. So that, that has been my background. <laughs> That's why I got into <laughs> to researching anger management using ancient philosophy. Um, so I'll kind of cop to that right off the bat. I am not, uh, you know, as a person, I am not really the rational charioteer in the, the model that Plato uses in the Phaedrus. I'm more the good horse. Mm-hmm. At least I'm not the bad horse. Hey. <laughs> what about you, Dan? Which are you? Oh, um, I'm... I definitely used to be the the a little bit more of the bad horse, and you know, uh, driven by your appetites and uh, passion more than anything. Okay, um, and and that that chaos and just, but uh, you know, life happens and you learn new things and you realize that there are better ways about going about your life, and so that is definitely something I've. Well, that's a nice segue right there yeah. into talking a little bit more about philosophy. So, here, you know, for our, our listeners to get a sense of how you got into it, I mean, they know that I got into it through academic philosophy. Mm-hmm. What drew you into studying philosophy? And, and in particular, what drew you into Stoicism? 
okay. So um, I was at university, um, University of Wisconsin, and um, I was doing an all-nighter working on a, a bioinformatics project. And about 3 a.m., I just needed to not look at my code anymore, and I needed to look <laughs> at something else to just clear my mind and not be thinking about that. And um, had been following a podcast that, that brought up stoicism. I thought that was kind of sounded interesting. I, I brought up this page that was referenced in this podcast and I'm like, I'm reading like just the really basics of stoicism. And I'm like, Oh, Oh yes, that, that makes sense. And that makes sense. And that's exactly how I used to react to things. And I really should uh, react to them in just a little bit better way. And this seems to be a really interesting path forward. Maybe this will work out. And so that was like my aha moment. That's that's good. You know, interestingly, when I first encountered stoicism, I didn't have quite the same reaction. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, you know, and again, I was in an academic context and I, I was probably, I don't know if I was younger, I was in my early 20s. And I, you know, I read Epictetus's Uncreating and Marcus's uh, um, Meditations. And I was very drawn to the like, you know, resiliency and toughness and mm -hmm. don't let things get to you. But all the notion of like, well, the, you know, you got to be just and wise. Eh, I wasn't that much into that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> or temperance. I was definitely not into temperance when I was in, in college. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, found you found some guys out in California while I was living out there that were also meeting as uh, regular Stoics. Or at least yeah, it seems like they had uh, a pretty well-organized group, right? Yeah, well, there's there like three Stoic groups in the San Francisco Bay Area itself, but I was with the um, Fremont Stoics. You know, actually, before we jump into the topic that we were going like, to schedule to do at this point, um, what do you think... What, what do you think the value of having like meetups or local local groups where you can actually talk about philosophy with other people that are not necessarily all, all that learned in it, but, mm -hmm. are, but are interested in it? What, what value did that provide you with? The very least, you know, community. We're all looking for that, that group of people that kind of understands you and uh, we're all going through different paths in life. And um, if you're, you're trying to use, you know, uh, philosophy as a way of life, which we'll get to in just a moment, um, th that it's really useful to have other people that are also um, trying to do this this project and to kind of compare notes. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes total sense to me. The, knowing that you're not the only person in the room who's into something, there's something about that that's particularly compelling, mm -hmm. you know, supportive, uh, helpful to, to people. We are really, you know, social. fundamentally social creatures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, um, well, let's I, let's talk about how philosophy is becoming kind of a, a bigger thing, oh, non academically. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, a lot of philosophy departments, including uh, my alma maters, are really uh, having a rough time. You know, the the place where I went to undergraduate no longer has a philosophy degree, hasn't had it for a long time. The place where I did my graduate studies, their department has, has shrunk terribly because it's been, you know, underfunded in Illinois for so long. So, you know, academic philosophy, eh, having a rough time, right? But, um, but that's not really the point of this program. Well, right. So, so, so philosophy is doing pretty good outside of the academy. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I mean, we could say, well, that's because of the internet and the fact that people can now connect with each other and find resources all over the world. And I think that's part of it. But what it, what else do you think is, is driving that? Well, I feel like it comes <coughs> down to the, we have turned philosophy into this kind of stuffy oh. know, ivory tower idea. At least that's what the, the common idea of what we call philosophy nowadays is. And... Um, and we moved away from more the ancient understanding of philosophy, which is you know, having a specific um, idea of the world and how you should act within it and trying daily to you know, act your values. That. Yeah, that's, you know, this is a bit of a side note, but um, one, there's, there have been quite a few scandals within the ethics community, the academic mm-hmm. ethics community, where people who are doing academic philosophy and specializing in ethics, you find out that they do these terrible things. You know? <laughs> and then some pe- you know, people reasonably said, well, what good is ethics if uh, it's not actually making the people, not just the students who, who are studying it, but the people who are actually teaching it, if it's not going to make them better people. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with the walking the walk, you know, daily practice. There's, there's a lot of people who conceive of philosophy as kind of this, like you said, you know, it's, it's, it's an elite activity. It's for um, people who are going to put in their, their time and then they, they go and do whatever they're going to do. It's not really part of their life. Yeah, and so when we actually make it part of our lives, and you, you've set now like, oh, well, you know, we should have a little bit of wisdom and courage and justice in our life. And like, <laughs> how how do you actually make that? That seems like a really kind of pie in the sky idea. And how do we bring that back down to earth? Yeah, you know, and and it's interesting. Uh, well, let, let you know. Let's take Stoicism as an example. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned these these things that we call the cardinal virtues of wisdom, temperance, justice, and courage. And there's there's other names for them that we could use, like moderation for temperance, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of an old fashioned name. Uh, a lot of people like to substitute an old fashioned name, fortitude, for courage. Yeah, you know? but you know, it's it's it, it's really all the same thing. And so you say to people, okay, so you know, you you should aim for these these virtues. This is a good thing for you. It'll make you have a better life. And then they say, yeah, but what about kindness? And this is something that we talked about previously. You know, if you read the Stoic texts, you find out that well, kindness was actually part of justice. But if you're just going by sort of a surface thumbnail kind of read, then you'd say, well, I don't know, this is really for me. It seems like it doesn't cover all the things that we want it to to like help how, us out with. How dare you be not benevolent? How is that not something that's part of your like core? Well, that, but it is. That's, yeah. I mean, I, if it were true, that would be a, a, a legitimate beef with, right. with, with the Stoics, <laughs> right? Um and so, you know, more reading, more, more study of the particular philosophical text often reveals all sorts of uh, cool features of the philosophy to us that then help people to integrate these, these things into, the, into their life. You know, I, 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 I kind of agree with you that philosophy recently got turned, in, and we'll use the, the old catchphrase, an ivory tower yes. sort of thing, right? Uh-huh. And I think that for a long time, you know, for maybe like the 70s and 80s, it was it was quite popular in philosophy departments to like pride themselves on how inaccessible they were to to everybody else. Oh, was it like Heidegger? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not thinking about Heidegger so much, but because uh, that I mean, he, he he certainly would fit in there. 
Um, he's he's earlier, but you had people interpreting him. But I, I'm thinking about more the typical American uh, and, and British philosophers mm-hmm. who would you know more probably more be talking more about how to interpret Wittgenstein or, or Russell or, ah. or Air people like that, or then later on people who are more contemporary with them like Ryle, and they they talked about philosophy as if it's something that ought not have shouldn't have to justify itself mm-hmm. right and that's always a bad sign when <laughs> when when you're when you're doing that because um, if you can't explain what you're doing and why you're doing it to other people uh, you know if you can't provide a rational account then why should they why should they pay for you to do it right mm-hmm. and so when there is plenty of money flowing into universities well then you could afford to be elitist but as soon as there's budget crises that means that philosophy would be on the chopping block, right? So, right. so I think that we're going to see less and less of that sort of thing, and more and more of what we're doing here, which is trying to trying to make philosophy practical and public and popular. And and you can see in the public stage, the, the <clears throat> a practical philosophy or a public philosophy has been growing. There's uh, stoic groups exploding all over the. Uh, United States, as well as in Europe and in yeah. Canada, as well as there are the new Epicureans and uh, several other groups. You know, you're talking about what the Randians and yeah, I mean, you know, you could you could look at all sorts of um, movements. Mm-hmm. So I would say that among the Hellenistic philosophies, um, Stoicism, in the sense of you know modern Stoicism, very broadly speaking, trying to have contemporary interpretations of it, has been the most successful. There's like you said, there's there's groups popping up almost monthly now mm-hmm. uh, across the world, and there's a you know an annual Stoicon, and and one way that you can tell that a movement is really doing well is when there's there's like factions within it who can be opposed to each other and say oh, yes. you've got the wrong interpretation. So there's the <laughs> traditional Stoics who say that the modern Stoics have got it all wrong, but the traditional Stoics are contemporary people as well. They just you know they, they're a little bit more committed to the the uh, theology. Of, yes. And and then you're right, the Epicureans, um, actually a, a new book came out just this last year, How to Be an Epicurean by Catherine Wilson, but there was another really good book by Hiram Crespo, who's down in Chicago, um, uh, cultivating the Epicurean Garden a couple of years back. And mm-hmm. um, they have groups as well, much smaller. Um, and then, you know, there's there's Facebook groups associated with these. I think that any... any um, Maybe if they had bigger gardens. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the goal is to like, and, 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 you know, ensconce yourself in this garden so nothing can get to you. So it can't right. be too big. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if you have to do a lot of work to cultivate it, mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's in line with what they <laughs> want to do. Right? They don't value work for its own sake. So I hear that. Gardening is enjoyable from some time to time. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, there's a lot of other going concerns, let's say, you know, different communities um, that, that offer philosophy as something that you would, you would commit yourself to and practice. It, it's, it's not as if it's not rigorous because there's, there's texts, there's thinkers, there's, you know, ideas that have to be studied and, and, and worked upon and sometimes reinterpreted, you know, to, mm-hmm. to deal with new problems. But it, it's, uh, it's vital. And that, that sense of community that we were talking about at the beginning is, is very important as well. So this kind of leads us to the idea of philosophy of as a way of life and what yeah. does it actually mean? And so, you know, it, we're using the term or the, the title of the book by uh, the French philosopher Pierre Hadot. Um, and his uh, deep reading of 
uh, what the ancient philosophers were actually doing. And so this is actually kind of one of the main places where modern philosophy kind of relearned what it meant to be a philosopher in the ancient sense to actually be that person that is trying to live a way of life. Yeah, and, and when we say modern in this case, we, we really mean very late moderns, like 19th and 20th century, because um, Ado points out that there were, there, you know, he's looking at the ancients primarily, but he points out that the existentialists are also very committed to philosophy as a way of life. Um, he points out a number of other, other uh, movements along the way. And I think that we could even take somebody who's kind of, uh, in many people's eyes, a boogeyman of, of uh, uh, philosophy as a way of life. They think it's very abstract and very disconnected from life. Rene Descartes, right? Mm-hmm. To be accused of being a Cartesian is a very bad thing, not only in philosophical circles, but in, in sort of academic circles generally, right? But Descartes himself, if you read his writings, um, especially if you read his letters and then you read like the introductions to his works, he saw what he was doing as a, a philosophical project that would, you know, transform the way people lived. It was, it was very practically oriented. There, there's a lot of, you know, theory involved mm-hmm. and, and it's pretty cool stuff to, to teach and to talk about. But he thought that he was going to transform the world. And, and make it better by the way that he was proposing doing philosophy, um, you know, with a fresh start um, and uh, round up rebuild. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I think that this this notion of philosophy as something that would be lived, it's not something foreign to most of the history of philosophy or rather, let's say most of philosophy's history because we could we can make a distinction there history of philosophy is kind of a specialty where you're like trying to figure out well why did descartes actually say this thing was he influenced by this guy at this time and that that can be kind of um you know it's it's fun stuff but it, it, it doesn't really reach ordinary people i think but if you bring up say like descartes rules of method in, in his discourse and you, you set him out and, you, and then you, you know, this is what I do with undergraduates when I'm <laughs> teaching it. I say, now how would this actually work in your discipline? You're going into nursing. How would you approach it as a Cartesian? And you know, the light bulb comes on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a sign that there is something, uh, connecting there. There, there, this, this could be lived as a, a way of life. David Hume saw philosophy that way. We teach these people as if they're, you know, they're, uh, engaging in in philosophy in the 20th century in an academic sense but really what they were trying to do is think about philosophy in a much broader sense in which it could transform our lives and and uh, help us uh you know make progress towards whatever we are doing and and get ourselves out of some silly errors and Mm -hmm. so you know ado as you mentioned focuses a lot on ancient philosophy um and we probably will too (laughs) but there's there's a lot of other examples throughout the the history yeah yeah um so when we are talking about this a lot of it is you know uh choosing certain values in which um, are important and like is there a hierarchy of these values um, and you know depending on the school or you know your own maybe eclectic version of these things that you have to make some sort of decisions about uh, what you're going to follow and um, to make a commitment to actually follow through on these day in and day out 
Yeah, I like that that you brought up a hierarchy of values. We can talk about prioritization, right? Right. Uh, a, a term that we usually use in, in contemporary stuff, but we don't think of it in terms of, of you know philosophy as helping us to prioritize better. But you're right. The ancients, you know, they said, well, think about these really fundamental things that people desire. Some people really do just want to have a good time. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, pleasure or avoidance of pain and trouble and, and you know, having security. Um, other people want to make a million bucks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, they think that if you just can make a lot of money or have income streams coming in or, uh, you know, whatever it happens to be, be richer than the neighbor next door, that's, that's having made it. That's happiness. Others said um, friendship, um, mm-hmm. relationships, um, having those, you know, harmonious, that, that could be good. And, and there's lots of other things. And how you, you know, in, in ancient times, they recognized that um, there's only so many different ways you can configure these. There's only so many, there's like a, a combinatorics, right? right? If we think about it in mathematical terms, mm-hmm. you only got so many options. And you could, you got to think about, well, which one are you going to put ahead of which? Or are you just going to kind of like throw them all in the air and let them land wherever they happen to <laughs> land? And which which school you pick, um, it, it determines at least the, the answer to how you ought to prioritize. And then, you, then you're stuck with the fact that you know what the blueprint is. And you look at yourself and you put that blueprint as sort of like superimposed on yourself and you're like, oh, this is a mess. Yeah. You know, this, this doesn't meet the blueprint at all. <laughs> um, how would I do this? How would I, how would I actually make any progress towards say, if I want to say that being a good person, moral virtue, right? Virtue of character. If that's really what's good and I look at myself, I could do this today and say, well, you know, I'm okay on this front, but not on that. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. How do you do the work? And so that's... That's kind of the main point of this a whole radio show is... How to do the work. How to do the work. Yeah. And we're not giving you answers that we're like coming up with just on the spot. Hopefully, they're going to be informed to some degree by philosophy and so we don't actually have to do that much heavy lifting. Yeah. Th- thankfully, there's a lot of guys who sat around and try to figure out the human condition. And, and women, too. Mary yes. Wollstonecraft, you know, Absolutely. great example. Yeah, yeah. So, um, to try to figure out the inner workings of what makes a good life. And yeah. Once we have an idea of what makes a good life, then they spent a lot more time trying to figure out the best ways of getting there. And so we are here to try to offer to you some of their wisdom passed down. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So philosophy as a way of life is experiential. You know, you, it, it, it does involve some reading and some uh, study, but it involves putting things into practice and then seeing what the results are. And sometimes, you know, you can know something intellectually. You can know, oh, okay, I should do this thing, and here's how it's supposed to work. But until you actually try it out and usually fail at it a couple times and then figure out what you did wrong and then get it to work, you don't really know it, mm-hmm. right? And the first step at being sort of good at something is sucking at something. <laughs> <laughs> so we all start off at the bottom. We all work That's up. true, yeah, yeah. Um, but the idea is to have a little bit of fortitude or courage to try it to, to persevere to persevere yeah and see if it actually works yeah you know that's that's actually another good thing to point out and i'm sure we'll talk about this plenty in in other episodes um a lot of people want instant results 
Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'll bring up another term that's that's been floating around a lot that is kind of connected to philosophy as a way of life, but, but could actually block the road to it. Mm-hmm. And that's the notion of life hack. Right. Right. So people... People, you know, there's all sorts of articles out there, mostly having to do with stoicism, but I think you could find them on others, like how to hack your life and, you know, transform it by using Marcus Aurelius, reading him for 10 minutes a day. Well, you're probably going to have to read him more than 10 minutes a day, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you're going to have to like do stuff and it, and it should be systematically connected with things and you'll have to like do some taking stock each day and, and see whether you're making any progress or not. But this, mm-hmm. this life hack mentality it's, you know, what it, the promise seems to be like, well, it's almost like taking a pill, right? Or flipping a switch. Get that instant gratification. Yeah, yeah. that that's that's right. It, it doesn't just fix things. It makes you feel better, mm-hmm. right? But sometimes feeling better isn't the path to actually making your life better. Yeah, well, especially well, if you've screwed it up. Yeah, right? <laughs> unless you're the Epicureans and then... Well, even they are willing to say... There's some cases where you, you you really do have to, you know, as we say, rip off the Band-Aid mm-hmm. and take the, the pain so that you can improve. Um, like, you know, for, so for example, we, people think about Epicureans, they hear this term and they're like, oh, you know, that means partying all the time. And the no. ancient Epicureans didn't do that, right? Because no. what happens when you party all the time? Well, you know, you get hung over. Or you can't figure out where you left your car. Or, you know, you wake up next to somebody and you're not sure who they are. And these are, these are not things that make your life better. Right? Especially so. once you're after 30. Yeah, that's <laughs> very true. <laughs> the, the body has much less tolerance for those sort of shenanigans. Right. But hey. Oh, go ahead. Oh, it's just, it's, it's you know, deferred um, pain. You know, you spend a night drinking and the next day... Uh, dealing with that, you know, yeah, a, a debt that is, you know, gets more and more larger and larger, you know, your payback every year. And, and there are some exceptions, people whose bodily constitution is, you know, stronger than, than the average, you know, think about Lemmy from, from Motorhead who, mm. uh, you know, would reputedly drink like a fifth of whiskey a day and he smoked all sorts of uh, cigarettes and mm-hmm. he'd get up, you know, he'd not, no problem. He'd get up on stage and do his thing. And then when he, he found out that he was sick, he, he, I think he cut back from uh, a certain amount of liquor to a smaller amount of liquor. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that, that would kill me. Uh, oh. To do that sort of yeah. thing, uh, e- I think even in my twenties that would have killed me <laughs> to do that. <laughs> well, yeah. It sounds like he was definitely a functioning alcoholic. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Um, um, and a very high performer too. Oh, you know, sure, you can be a performer and a functioning alcoholic. Doesn't mean it's a particularly good state to be in. in, in as a matter of fact. In, in some respects, being able to get away with something like that is actually a disadvantage. Mm. Because you come to rely on it. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life. So when I was in my teens and 20s, I was, you know, I, w- I was eating a lot, you know, like probably um, anywhere from 5,000 to 6,000 calories a day. But I was also exercising an awful lot, you know, sometimes three, four hours a day. And because that was very important to me at the time, you know, very invested in being strong and body image and, and it felt good to do. And then uh, I made the mistake as I moved into my 30s of not not tempering the amount that I was eating, the, the enjoyment that I was mm-hmm. taking in food, right? And I wasn't exercising as much. <laughs> and, you know, you, it's almost like mathematics, right? 
<laughs> so many calories going in, so many calories going out. If you don't uh, expend them, uh, they're going to, you know, accumulate and they accumulate in, in fat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, a, there's all sorts of ways that, that people do that where they, they find something that's functional for them at one point in their life. And it may be very pleasurable. Uh, and then they don't. goes on autopilot. You exactly. Just, you don't re-examine the thing. And one of the big things that we find, and it's a, a good spiritual practice or. Um, which is the next topic here, um, yeah. is uh, the idea of taking assessment every day or you know, maybe weekly or monthly assessments to see what you are doing and make sure that they are, not, uh, they are actually appropriate for the, what you need at the moment. Honest assessments. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't do any good if you, if you, you know, kind of hedge a little bit on, on uh, what, what's going on in your life. <laughs> you have to be looking at it. It might actually be helpful to have somebody else involved in the assessment project at certain points to, to give you some guidance and say, no, no, you lose your temper a lot more often than you think you do. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and that's, that's another reason why we should have a community yeah. working through these things. Yeah. You know, we, we are so good at um, fooling ourselves into thinking that we are you know, better than we might think. Yeah, or we're less worse. <laughs> less bad? Less, less bad. <laughs> less bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so spiritual practices, um, I believe, is a coin also by Hado. Yeah. Um, which he was uh, going through specifically uh, Marcus Aurelius in really deep fashion. He was trying to figure out what this particular work was. And he finally dawned upon him that this was him writing to himself every day or every morning about the uh, things that he is either trying to do that day or a reflection on the things that he had done that day and all the things that he was preparing to do that day were also other spiritual practices. So, Yeah, and, and we should mention, so Mark, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations is a work that's not very systematic. No. And so, you know, why would Hado have to figure out what's going on? Because the work is, frankly speaking, kind of a mess when you read it, right? Very. It's so, all over the place. <clears throat> so it makes it makes good sense that he'd, he'd zero in on that. And Hado uses this word spiritual. So he's writing in French. And, and in French, um, the term spirit, esprit, means um, what we th- usually think of as spirit, but it also means mind. So you could think of these as mental practices as well, if you want to use that, that, that term. They are things that are supposed to be <clears throat> transforming the person, helping them understand who they are, um, helping them develop towards, towards their, their good. And um, there's a whole variety of them. Right, so from from all the different schools, you know, if you're trying to do yeah. one thing, you've set certain values up because you're following one school. Then there's a set of practices for that. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting too. You don't have to like. It's not as if you have to pick a school, and then you can only read their stuff and mm-hmm. think about that. I mean, you can steal stuff from other schools. Um, Seneca is is a prime example of somebody who not only does that but also justifies his doing that right <laughs> because he and, he and he takes it from the school that's most directly opposed to the stoics the epicureans mm-hmm. but the justification is uh well they got something good over there let's let's make it our own and yeah. so you know if he was talking about like you know ideas want to be spread yeah yeah they don't they're they're, they're sort of a common um common wealth of, of humankind right right yeah you should not reserve yourself only to one school or one 
teacher or one thought. Yeah. And, and so, um, yeah, spiritual practices, what, you know, what are they? They, they are things that we do and usually they can be framed in terms of, you know, a couple sentences to a paragraph, do these things in this way. We're actually going to explore one of them towards the end of the show that we call negative visualization, uh, just to give you an idea about how these, these things work. And you, you know, you do them sometimes daily, sometimes, you know, less frequently, sometimes many times a day and you can get better at them. You can do them, you know, uh, more effectively. And over time, they, they produce transformations in you. And the transformations can be cognitive in what we think or what we understand. They can be affective, that is, in how we feel things or what we desire. And they can also help us to develop new habits and to break old habits that are getting in our way. And I, I think another dimension that often gets left out, they change our relationships or offer new possibilities for relationships for us. Both with ourselves and others. Exactly. Yeah. And so one that, you know, many people might be aware of is, you know, within the Buddhist tradition, you know, Vipassana or mindfulness meditation is a very strong, you know, spiritual practice. It's a, a looking into the uh, inner workings of your mind and trying to be more aware of that as well as your feeling within the world. Yeah. And now let's talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a good thing to do at various points, right? You, mm -hmm. you encounter something that's annoying or something. You could stop and think, well, what's, what's actually going on here with me? But it's also something that people would deliberately do um, on, a, on a schedule, right? Right. right. So you can either uh, fall into it in an in experience where it might be useful for a immediate um, reassessing of the... A situation that you're in or you know sit down and do your 10 or hour long meditation and the more you do That's it it's a lot the of meditation yeah <laughs> yeah i mean there you're talking about like what only a few monks can do right? <laughs> but i mean the rest of us can do all sorts of shorter ones we can oh. break it up and and still derive the benefits from it mm -hmm. and by doing it regularly you're setting yourself up to be able to do it spontaneously when you're in a situation right right allow you to kind of drop into that headspace yeah there's another thing that um the stoics over and over again say have x whatever x happens to be ready at hand and they usually mean some saying but it's actually not just a saying, it's also a practice. Mm -hmm. So like when Epictetus says, you know, have ready at hand these, these different things. So when you encounter a troubling situation, you can, for example, say to something that's appearing to you to be the way it is, um, let, me, let me have a little bit of a pause here. Let's see whether you're actually representing things as they are. Having that verbal phrase is helpful. Right? It's not just something that you feel or do. It's something that you can explain to another person or explain to yourself. Yeah, you know, I guess uh, people suffer more in thought than in reality. It's oh, yeah. At-hand phrase. Yeah, uh, although that's better to have at-hand for yourself than to console somebody who's, who's currently suffering. Right. <laughs> they don't usually want to hear that. <laughs> um, so... This is uh, oh, good segue, right? Right. Um, so we have a, a question that has been submitted 
for the show today. Uh, yeah, it, and actually, I'm, I'm drawing this from one of the Facebook groups, uh, which which uh, talks about stoicism, where people bring up common life problems. And it, it runs like this. Um, I've been studying stoicism for about a year now, and I've been able to make some positive changes in my thinking. I wonder where the line is between ignoring something and allowing yourself to be a doormat. And this, there's a little bit more to it, but I think that's a good launching point. There's a lot of people who, um, you know, get involved in stoicism and, and they do so because they're drawn to it because it seems to promise a resilience in the face of problems. Um, but then there's, you know, there's this notion that it means just accepting anything that happens to you. And well, what if people are jerks to you? Mm -hmm. What do you do? And so this seems to be a, a, a common misconception of the, the full breadth of the, the philosophy. And so it's a, um, two pieces, two major pieces. You have, uh, kind of this idea of the, the dichotomy of control that, um, the things that are under your uh, control are um, the things that actually matter in life and th things that are outside someone that other people's actions um, aren't things that uh, have any effect on what your virtue is or what your uh, how you should be experiencing the world you shouldn't be upset with how other people act around you the and so they get into this kind of rut of thinking that this is the only way of looking at things when in fact um, there's another big portion of stoicism with this uh, discipline of action that it's not that you um, should be passive and not act at that particular moment um, because it shouldn't affect your uh, how you feel but that it um, is the ability for you then to act in the proper way without being disturbed by how other people are acting. Yeah. And, and we should talk a little bit about the dichotomy of control. I mean, we'll do, we'll probably do a whole show on it later on down the line. Absolutely. So this is a, like Dan was saying, an absolutely, you know, central stoic idea. It gets, gets, gets formulated explicitly by uh, Epictetus, who's a late stoic, but it seems to have played a big role prior to that and the idea is that there's there's some things that are in our control or in our power or literally are up to us and then there's other things that aren't and they they draw the line at a place where a lot of us maybe wouldn't saying that our bodies aren't in our control our money our reputation other people's actions how other people think about us none of those things are actually in our control they don't mean that uh, of course that you have no possible way of you know influencing these but mm -hmm. It, it's you know whatever you do could could go astray so if i want dan to think i'm a swell guy um and he doesn't think so um i can do all sorts of nice things you know buy him chocolates uh take him out for for drinks or something like that uh give him a glowing review on facebook whatever I'm, I'm sorry i'm just you know i'm I'm pervious to your charms over there Greg. yeah exactly talk him up you know uh and 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 he could say well i don't like this guy you know mm -hmm. uh there's nothing you can actually do about it um and then what, what is in our control, our thoughts, our desires, our, our choices, all of the things that we, we think of as the core to us, mm -hmm. the kind of people that we want to be. And then that does seem to lay pe people, I think, feel like that lays them in for uh, being insulted or humiliated or treated wrong. And then they're, you know, a stoic who I think doesn't quite get it 
would use some of the lines where they say, well, you, you think you're insulted? No, that's just your thought. It's, you're not really being insulted. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only you know, the, the viewpoint that you have on it. And that's kind of true, but also kind of not true. If I decide, so I'm sitting across from Dan right now. If I decide I want to say nasty things to him, mm-hmm. I'm actually saying nasty things. Now, whether he lets that affect him or not, that's up to him, right? But it doesn't change the fact that I'm being a jerk right? saying <laughs> these things, objectively speaking, right? And, and I can tell you, you're being a jerk and you really shouldn't do that without, exactly. yeah. without actually feeling angry that he was saying those things to me. Yeah, so let's talk about what, what seems to be the kind of the common uh, issue in, in this question. It's about setting boundaries, right. right? So can you set boundaries reasonably without um, allowing yourself to get upset when those boundaries are, are crossed or when the person uh, makes fun of you for setting the boundaries or whatever else we want to, to say about that? And the answer is, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but and, you have to be able to know where your boundaries are. and Oh, that's a good point. So, so this is where the, the you know, stoic conception of justice would come in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's some things that we probably, sh- even though we could like not allow them to get to us, we probably shouldn't allow people to do them to us. There, being a stoic doesn't mean that you have to endure abuse forever and ever and ever to show everybody what, what a stoic you are. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, if you, if you were trying to evangelize for stoicism, I guess that could be a good thing, but that's, that's, that's a straw, st- straw man argument for what it is. Yeah. Now, why? Tell, tell people what a straw man is. Oh, just right. in so case a straw man is when you make uh, you take someone else's position and you make a um, the worst possible case for it. And so you're making a, a, a straw fake representation of what that argument is. And then you say, oh, look at this bad argument. I can easily knock that down without actually dealing with the substance of the idea that the other person is actually holding. So how is this? How is this straw manning? Um, this is kind of like your um, uh, your your uh, Vulcan. Your your poor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a Vulcan is like a, a really bad understanding of Stoicism. Is like he is totally unemotional and he lets absolutely nothing um, interact with him, and he is pure, purely logical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And except for that, that, that one period, and we're talking, of course, about <laughs> in the Star Trek universe where their hormones like go haywire and then oh. they turn into the, just like mindless brutes, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, actually, to you know, so this is actually a great launching point. Um, the goal of any philosophy of life that's worth doing is not to like cut off or, you know, um, repress things about ourselves that that we we think aren't aren't particularly good there may be some things where we do want to we want we want to say oh i don't want to do that anymore but it's to integrate ourselves better so rationality that's not integrated with emotions Mm -hmm. neither one is really doing doing a very good job then right right and so uh if we look at our the opposite version of this would be a still manning and you're looking at to try to make mm. the best argument for it. And so whenever you are, are looking at a, a philosophical school or an idea that is beneficial for all to try to present the um, idea or argument in the best way possible. And I feel like we will do that whenever we can. 
Yeah, that's a commitment we can make, which we'll probably fail at. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why we got two of us. We can catch catch it when we when we uh, mess up that way, right? Right. Um, but going back to the to the question, so being able to set boundaries and then being able, you know, if you think about what it takes to enforce boundaries, mm-hmm. anytime that you, with, with some people, anytime you put up a boundary, that's like a uh, invitation to them to try to cross it, right? And mm-hmm. so, y- if you're going to set a boundary, you do have to be prepared to say there'll be some consequences or sanctions if you don't do this. I won't talk with you anymore. Mm-hmm. Or uh, if you're stuck living with somebody, I suppose you say, well, listen, I'm just going to go in another room and I'm not going to engage with you mm-hmm. if you're acting this way. And and you could do that in in a variety of different ways. You could do it in kind of a petulant way, like oh, I'm not going to I'm not going to do anything with you now, you know. <laughs> Or you can just be very firm and, and just stick to it and say, listen, you know, I, I want to be treated in a certain way. This is a value to me. If you care about me, you're going to respect that. And then probably the first time the person will come up with some nonsense excuse. Oh, well, you know, I, I get to do this because blah, 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 blah. But maybe if you keep doing it enough. Um, and, and again, this sounds like it's putting too much pressure on, on the, you know, the the person who's being negatively affected to do the mm-hmm. work, but that is, that is what they have to do. It's, it, it's it, kind of life. Is you're not going to be presented with people that are going to be perfect people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's it's a valuable skill to be able to transfer from situation to situation. So you know, first you do it maybe in a personal relationship. Well, then you can also do it at work, mm-hmm. or you can do it with the person I don't know on on the bus who won't you know take their 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 stuff off their seat and let you sit down and and you know you can, you can do it in, in and it's a very valuable thing to be able to to and you know bring into one's life yeah. um and this is a, a perfect transition to our uh, spiritual practice today which is negative visualization which sounds you know rather negative right? yes but, but yeah. it, it's the the trade-off the 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 better that we can it's the opposite of like positive thinking and positive thinking is like you know everything is going to work out everything is fine like that meme with the dog and the uh oh, the, sitting the burning the house yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> right. it's, this is fine i think is what, yeah. is what the dog is saying right yes um yeah negative visualization it, it's not to be morbid it's not to dwell on painful or troubling or whatever, you know, negative uh, modality we want to think about things for their own sake. It's to do it in order to have uh, a better life. So I'll let Dan, I see him queuing up a passage right here uh, from Marcus Aurelius. I'll let him uh, bring up uh, one of the classic forms of it. Yeah, so this is from uh, Book 2, Section 1 of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. When you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't tell good from evil. But I've seen the beauty of good and the ugliness of evil. I have recognized that the wrongdoer has a nature related to my own, not of the same blood or birth, but of the same mind and possessing a share of the divine. And so none of them can hurt me. No one can implicate implicate me in ugliness nor can i feel angry at my relative or hate him we are both born to work together like feet and hands and eyes and the two rows of teeth upper and lower to obstruct each other is unnatural to feel anger at someone to turn your back on him these are obstructions 
Yeah, so this goes beyond just negative visualization. The first part is negative visualization, and then he brings in these reminders about how he can deal with the the people. And and, and somebody might say, oh, Marcus, man, he was a jerk. You know, look at how how badly he talked about everybody. Well, no, he's being very realistic. You know, he was a, he was an emperor, so think of him as like a CEO of a, a vast thing like Apple. Unless you just surround yourself with yes people, who you, now you're, you're surrounding yourself with people who are lying to you, so you may as well say, I'm going to uh, encounter liars. You're going to have people like doing all sorts of crazy stuff that they, they shouldn't be doing. And they're not doing it because... Um, you know, they, they just only made innocent mistakes. Some of them are actually bad people, you Mm -hmm. know? So, you know, thinking about like every day, is it better to think in the morning, like I'm going to get to work and everything's going to go perfectly (laughs) well or, um, and then you get in and someone cuts you off in traffic and then you're like, I was expecting everything to be perfect. But now the reality is that didn't happen versus it was like, Oh, um, you know, what is it uh, thinking? Oh, I'm going to get into an accident because there are stupid drivers around everywhere. And then you get to work and no one hit you. And so you're like, Oh, that was a lot better than what I had expected in the first place. <laughs> My outcome is better than what I expected. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be quite so dramatic. It no. could be, well, I'm going to get stuck in traffic and people are going to honk at me from behind and there's nothing I can do about it. And that bothers me. And then, then you can start thinking about, well, why? There's, there's things you can do in negative visualization. So one is you can think about this thing that I'm visualizing. Why do I see it as so bad? And if you examine it kind of slowly and carefully, you can see, well, maybe actually it isn't that bad. I'm just typically reacting as if it's the end of the world. You know, mm-hmm. like think about public speaking, right? Great fear of a lot of people. So you have to give a talk, a presentation at work. Uh, and, and you're like, oh, this is going to be terrible. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to start sweating and then people are going to see it and I'm not going to pronounce the words right. And people are going to laugh at me. You can run all these sort of mm-hmm. things through your mind. And yeah, some of them might actually happen. But um, is it going to be the end of the world if they do? I mean, how many... Other people have you seen present where they didn't say everything perfectly and then people at the end were like, oh, good presentation. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't perfect, but it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. And then a- another good benefit of this is the idea that, you know, if these things that though that you had thought were bad actually do happen, now you're already prepared because you've already thought through how you should be acting step by step instead of being thrown into the the middle of the arena without preparation. <laughs> yeah, having thought, hey, it's going to be perfect. Yeah, yeah, you can, you, you know, I had a client a long time ago who was a very high performer and he, um, he was struggling with anger issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I do a lot of work with that. And he wasn't having the usual kind of anger issues where people lose control and they say something they shouldn't say. Instead, it was just that he, he was in a very competitive environment and people would, would try to push his buttons. And he found himself not, and this makes perfect sense, not able to think through complex solutions adequately and, and to articulate them at the level that he wanted. He was, he was like a C-suite executive. Mm-hmm. So he, he had very high expectations of himself. And so I, I suggested to him negative visualization. I said, listen, every time you're going to go into one of these meetings, take three minutes beforehand in your office and just, you know, visualize these people deliberately trying to, to get you riled. 
and um, you know how you can respond to it, how you can how you can not respond to it. Mm-hmm. And he did that, and it, it helped him out quite a bit. You know, because you know sometimes your response is worse than the original thing in the first place. You know, actually, that's so. This is this is kind of an interesting thing to, to get close to going on. One of the things we could actually talk about for future shows is when responses that are trying to fix something actually make it much much worse, right? Yeah. Um, and, and why that's the case, and how to how to recover so it doesn't go from one calamity, a small calamity, to a larger calamity, to eventually the whole building falls down. <laughs> you know, gotta you know. Save your losses or cut your losses. There we go. Yeah. Oh, hey. Oh. But the, but is there more that we should say about negative visualization about how people could do it? I mean, I think one thing we could say is it's a practice that you can do, like we said, before you go into a situation that you think you're going to be challenged, like right. driving in the morning or you know meeting with coworkers. Mm-hmm. But it's also something the Stoics thought you had to do daily, right? Right. Why? So, you know, there's certain life events that will happen to all of us eventually. You know, we will all, you know, lose a job. We'll all lose a pet. We'll all lose a loved one. You know, none of us are, you know, immortal here. And so at some point in time, we are going to be presented with these hardships of our life and we should uh, be prepared to actually deal with them in a, you know, uh, a not, incredibly emotionally charged way before we actually have to interact with the experience in the first place. Yeah. So we're not just reacting on the basis of what we've got, you know, right in front of us. We, we can behave rationally, you mm-hmm. can say, and not rationally in the sense of not having emotions, but you know, it was still keeping things in proper perspective. And, um, and, and yet, and you're right. Um, Everybody that we know, so this is kind of a downer to go out on, but (laughs) everybody that we know, either we're going to die before them or they're going to die before us or we're going to die at the same time. So you got to be, you know, willing and able to to deal with that sort of thing. And and there's all sorts of other things where negative visualization doesn't have to necessarily be visualizing death every day. But so but the good thing is we're here right now. Yeah. So that's what's important at the moment. So um. We're going to be wrapping up here. Um, I'm Dan Hayes once again and Greg Sadler. And uh, we have uh, lovely outro music by our friend Scott Teruli. There we go. Thank you very much for this inaugural episode of Wisdom for Life from River West Radio. 